When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by fellow Lincoln Project co-founder, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, a number one New York Times bestseller, Rick Wilson. Rick, welcome back. Hey, man. Great to be back on the podcast. So, Rick, I want to talk a little bit about the infrastructure bill passing and what that meant, A, for the country, but B, the sort of firestorm that it set off within the Republican Party. And it was a bipartisan bill. We should remind everybody of that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the aftermath of the elections in Virginia, New Jersey for governor, but also some other interesting elections that were out there. So, Rick, it's been a little over a week since Election Day, where in Virginia elections, Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin defeated Democrat and former Governor Terry McAuliffe. He won by a little bit over two points in a state that Biden won last year by 10. The exit polls revealed that about a third of Virginia voters cited the economy. Others were taxes, COVID-19 and abortion. But the issue that seemed to be the deciding factor was education, which about a quarter of voters said there was the most important, which I had heard anecdotally and I think obviously was pretty clear. But, you know, it was interesting because, you know, in the wake of that and what appeared at the time to be a loss also in New Jersey that no one was picking up on, which was apparently a very close election driven by property taxes, which are very high in New Jersey. You know, it's a good reminder that state races hinge on state issues mostly. But also, you know, between last Tuesday when we have two very close governor's races, one hold, one loss, and when infrastructure passes, it went from hair on fire, the world is ending to wait maybe there's some green shoots. In your experience, is this driven just by, is it just purely the commentary? Is it just purely the Acela Corridor? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, every year, and I've said this when Republicans have had great years, and I've said this when Democrats have had great years, unless it is a real cataclysmic switchover year, like 2010 or 1994, off-year elections are interesting, but they are not entirely predictive. But in Washington, it is a city of herd animals, and nowhere more so than the political journalism space, where they immediately took Glenn Young and said, oh, the Republican Party is all fine. Now it's all better. Everything's good, and it's going to be perfectly fine. And then he's a normal Republican, and they'll all emulate him, and they've got a roadmap and a game plan. And, and then they realized that you're still out there with weirdos and psychopaths and Trump hangers on. And all these crazy people out in the States. I mean, look, Mitch McConnell is tearing his hair out right now. I heard this today over Ohio because his candidate, Jane Timken, is not gaining ground on J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel, who are racing each other in the Trump crazy Olympics. And the Republicans that are out there with the guy Blake Masters in Arizona this week, who's out there with an actual television ad saying Trump won. And folks, look forward to what I'm going to call, Rick, a blast from the past spot on Blake Masters coming soon to a Twitter feed near you. Indeed. But yeah, I mean, look, listen, Democrats should learn some hard lessons from Virginia, as everyone should. You know, we weren't told, hey, there's a problem, come in until the last, you know, I don't know, four weeks, five weeks of the campaign. And that problem was because 
when Glenn Youngkin sealed the deal to get the nomination, Jerry's people knew it. They knew what was going on. They knew Glenn was buying the nomination and he wasn't going to have a primary. Well, that's when they should have started beating the ever-loving shit out of the guy on everything. But instead, Youngkin had two months to spend almost $12 million on television to shape himself as, I'm the nice guy in the vest. Don't you like me? You know, our Democratic friends, you know, they always have a little bit of a schizophrenic approach to us. It's like, oh, we really like what you guys do, but we don't trust you. Okay, don't trust us. But when we tell you how the game plan of a Republican campaign is going to run, we know it because we've done it. And this was not as unpredictable or as wild of a loss as the commentary it wanted to make it out to be. You know, Youngkin had unlimited personal money. He spent unlimited personal money. Every time he had a problem, he would just dump another million dollars worth of TV and digital into an area. So, look, folks, take the licking, learn from it. You always learn more from elections you lose than elections you win. And in the words of my great uncle, J.G. Hollister, get your dick out of the dirt, son. You know, get up. Get back in the fight. <laughs> well, you know, as we look beyond Virginia and the close loss there and New Jersey and the close win there for Democrats, we should also take a look at places like New York City, where an African-American cop from Queens won the primary and obviously won the general. Not exactly what you would call a progressive candidate, not someone, I guess, given his background in law enforcement, is probably a proponent of something like defund the police. You mean the dumbest political message in the last hundred years? Right. In Buffalo, a self-avowed socialist wins the Democratic primary for mayor. The sitting mayor who was beaten runs as a write-in candidate and wins. Back to defund the police in Minneapolis, a ballot measure, a local measure to you know, replace the police department with a department of public safety answerable to the, the city council loses. And then Rick, maybe the one thing that shouldn't have surprised me was that a Republican candidate in Seattle won the district attorney's race. <laughs> well, yeah, the city attorney of Seattle is now a Republican. And having done a lot of work in Washington state back in the 2000s, you know, that was a state that once again, the Democrats had complete control from top to bottom of that state. And, you know, folks, no less a luminary than Jim Clyburn thought that defund the police was the dumbest message of all time, especially in the African-American community, where they tend to have a more direct risk of a criminal act happening to them or their family. So when you see people in Minneapolis, not exactly a conservative hotbed, and Seattle, not exactly a conservative hotbed, rejecting the defund the police message, this is where the Democrats get captured by the progressive wing of their party, and they don't apply the practical politics. You know who would have never said defund the police? Barack Obama, because he was smart about politics. He understood it. And it's regrettable that they've lost a bunch of these seats over that issue. And it's regrettable that, frankly, we've had this thing hijacked by a combination of Joe Manchin, who's like this venal Washington figure, but also by the squad holding up the spending bills. 2022 is upon us, guys. And nobody's going to give a hot rat's ass about the number in the final spending bill. They want to know things are moving forward. Biden had an opportunity this week, and he's converted on it, I think, pretty well in terms of the infrastructure bill. But they need to open up more of those spaces for opportunities where they can say, hey, we're doing these good things for people. The prior individual in the Oval Office would have sat there all day and eaten fast food and, you know, played with his Twitter account. Joe Biden's getting the work done. It's a smart play if they do it. That's the thing. I mean, the one thing, you know, Rick, you and I were on the road last week. We're about to be on the road again next week. And the one thing that seemed to be clear to the folks that we were talking to and meeting with was, you know, and the people we were talking to are interested 
they're politically astute, they're informed, that doesn't make them any less sick of like all of the noise and all of the constant gnashing of teeth and, you know, flame throwing. And look, obviously we have a very particular brand of campaigning, but we also understand that the grander goal is one is to, you know, be successful in 2022 and largely in 24 to save the Republic, not to save the Republican Party or make Democrats better at campaigning, but to make sure that Americans live the lives they want to live. And it sure sounds like a lot of them, and even if our interactions are anecdotal, you know, people just want to get back to living in a time when living is weird. You know, this idea that we need to return to normalcy, we need to get back to just arguing over like what the marginal tax rate is going to be and things like that. It's a great idea. And people want it desperately. And it always happens this way where people, they resist the idea that we've got to be in the fight. And look, even a lot of our friends in the Democratic Party, they're like, oh, yeah, well, we'll start advertising next summer. What? That's how Glenn Youngkin beat Kerry McAuliffe. He started advertising in the moment he was going to get that nomination, and Terry let him run for a couple of months. If you let the Republicans get out there and run six months worth of CRT ads and six months worth of Joe Biden is a senile communist poopy pants, you know, they're going to have a strategic advantage that will be hard to overcome. And they're going to have a strategic advantage where they will be able to unify even some of the wounds that we're helping to cause, like between Trump and McConnell. If we get outmuscled by a multi-billion dollar Republican machine for six months, you might as well just like start letting Jim Jordan pick out curtains for the speaker's office. So before we get to the Republicans acting poorly, which they always do. So Tuesday night, Glenn Youngkin beats Terry McAuliffe. Friday night, less than a week ago now. The House passed finally after weeks and months of gnashing of teeth and sausage making and everything else, passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They'll send it to President Biden's desk for his signature. You know, the bill passed with 13 Republican votes and six Democrats, specifically the squad, as you mentioned, Rick, voting against it. The bill was previously approved by the Senate and had been waiting on the final House vote. So now Congress will turn its attention to Biden's Build Back Better bill, which Senator Schumer says he hopes, you know, will pass by Thanksgiving. But let's put that aside for a second. So, Rob, why don't we play a spot that we dropped today regarding the infrastructure bill? We are going to fix our inner cities and rebuild our highways, bridges, tunnels, airports, schools, hospitals. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure. For four years, Donald Trump promised us Infrastructure Week. One trillion dollars in infrastructure investment. World-class infrastructure. Infrastructure Week. Infrastructure. We call it Infrastructure Week. The so-called builder said only he could deliver on new roads, bridges, and airports. I alone can fix it. But who got the job done? Finally, Infrastructure Week. Joe Biden. Action, not talk. Results, not tweets. Millions of new jobs. Billions for the economies Donald Trump wrecked. Serving America instead of serving himself. Joe Biden. Building back better. So, Rick, talk to us about how, like, really what this did is it reminded us what we don't want, reminded us what can happen, reminded us what's ahead. And it also penetrated that bubble of Washington's bullshit. This idea that, oh, Biden is in desperately bad condition and it's over, this narrative that's been very, very popular on Fox News that has somehow seeped into the cognitive space of people who know better. And it is an ad that the Democrats, and I said this on LPTV last night, 
steal it, guys. Rip the back end off and put your own tags on it. I don't care. We're happy if people get out there and push this message because it is a meaningful, tangible accomplishment. It wasn't achieved by tweeting all day and calling people Trumpian nicknames. It was done by a president who actually understands this process very well, who's willing to sit in a room and willing to make a deal and willing to talk to people and willing to get this thing done. And it's just a very different space to be in as a president than Donald Trump was. He governed by fear. He governed by tweeting. And Biden's not that guy. He's an actual nuts and bolts political operator. And as opposed to Trump's signature legislation, which was the 2017 tax cut, which gave more money away to people who already have lots of it, this is one where it will drive federal funds into all 50 states' territories. Anyone listening to this podcast has the one specific road, bridge, you name it, that you drive over or you see and go, I don't like that. (laughs) I'm not a fan of driving over that deal. And every single one of these Republicans that are out there saying, if you voted for infrastructure, you're going to get primaried and Trump will destroy you and all this stuff. And the threats that have come to these people because of that, it tells you where their party is at in every possible way. There's no policy here because, look, every single one of these shit talkers, Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, every penny of infrastructure that's going to be spent in their districts, they'll be there cutting the goddamn ribbon. They will be there front and say, look what I brought home for you. And it won't be, I reject this out of principle. I am too deeply you know, worried about the deficit. Get the fuck out of here. So, Rick, 13 House Republican members voted for this bill. To your point, as you noted, Trump has attacked them. Marjorie Taylor Greene has said you're going to get primaried. Madison Cawthorn did his performative tree punching, which is not a euphemism. Actually, there is a video no, of him punching a tree. He literally punches trees, folks. And now there's a longtime moderate Republican member of Congress from Michigan, Fred Upton, who, by all accounts, is a very good guy, who received this voicemail in response to his vote for the infrastructure bill. Rob, why don't we go ahead and run that? Traitor. That's what you are. You're a piece of traitor. I hope you die. I hope everybody in your family dies. You piece of trash motherfucker. Voted for dumb. You're stupider than me. He can't even complete a sentence. You dumb mother, traitor, piece of piece of trash. Hope you die. Hope your family dies. Hope everybody in your staff dies. You piece of traitor. Well, Rick, I've heard you go on some tirades, but that gentleman even outpaces your profanity per second. My ability to make sailors blush with the degree to which I can deploy profanity is legendary. But that guy is just psychotic. And let me ask you that, Rick, because I don't want to make light of it. But I mean, you personally have been on the receiving end of a lot of stuff like this. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah, right. Yesterday. Right. And probably more than the rest of us combined would be my guess. So I want to ask two questions. When you get a message like that, what does it mean to you? How do you sort of build up a psychological defense against it? That's the first question. Then second, How does anyone, whether or not it's Fred Upton, who's been around a long time, or a school board member, people who are trying to do their jobs, positions of public trusts, why would anybody stay in office if they're going to have to deal with that? This is a deliberate part of the Bannon strategy of destroying every institutional structure so that only the people that are the most insane and dedicated to his cause will seek public office. And the Democrats had a great year in 2018. 
because they won 41 seats. Well, about 15 of those Republicans were people who were sick of getting death threats because they weren't 100 percent with Donald Trump. And so that environment has existed now since basically since 2015. You know, I have great relationships with the FBI because I have to send some of these people over to those folks. And, you know, the other night, a certain senator tweeted something false and horrifying about us. And, you know, I've had to send a bunch of emails and phone messages and DMs, you know, over to law enforcement because these people honestly believe not just that we are political opponents, but that we are enemies who must be destroyed and intimidated and threatened. And if that doesn't work, that they want to escalate that to the next level. And I hate it. It's been going on a long time. It's caused my family an enormous amount of anxiety and fear over the years. And because these people have stalked my kids, they have followed them. They have left notes on their doors. They have done that to my house. I hate it. I understand it. I don't like it. But this is a feature of Trumpism. This is a feature of Bannonism. The purpose of terror is to terrorize. And they have a belief that most people don't want to have their lives threatened. And they're right. Most people don't want to live in fear. And they're right. Which is why our friend Tribby talks a lot about this. This is a piece of the authoritarian playbook that you have to push back with courage. You have to push back with conviction. You have to push back on it all the time and never let these assholes get away with it. And I think that's right. And that's when you see, you know, we're watching the mockery of justice that is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. If anybody's been watching that in Kenosha, Wisconsin, if that young man is acquitted by a judge who is straight out of, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, he looks like Fire Marshal Bill. He's berating the prosecutor. He won't allow people to be called victims. He's reading a cookie catalog on the bench. Like he's something ridiculous, but his actions very well may result in a young man who crossed state lines with a firearm illegally obtained, shot three people. If violence is not held to account, and it could be Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, it could be these people on January 6th and the people that plotted it, it will beget more violence. It doesn't make people take a deep breath and say, I got away with it. The people that are doing this in a deliberate and consistent manner, people that are bringing these threats to members of Congress, look, there's a whole Trumpian demimond of digital bullshit out there where these people are on Discord channels and Telegram channels on the various chans four and eight, and they are sharing private information. They're sharing, you know, oh, here's how to get a hold of this guy's wife. Here's where his kids go to school. And the people that are pushing that information out are not random 17-year-old assholes. They are smart people. They are planners. They are plotters. They are schemers. The people that planned 1-6 were not the idiots that charged up the steps. The people that planned it were guys like Steve Bannon and Roger Stone and Ali Alexander and a whole bunch of people in the White House. And that was a moment where we came perilously close. I mean, we came within milliseconds of them finding a Democratic member of Congress or a Republican they didn't like and beating them to death. And that's what would have happened. Mobs do what mobs do. We just live in a culture where when one political party believes that threatening people that oppose them with physical violence or death is acceptable, you're on a very slippery slope and things can go wrong very, very quickly. And that's, you know, whether or not it's what we saw in Kenosha We see, again, this kid, Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin, walking around pretending to be some sort of vigilante, which also, you know, glorifies that behavior. Hell, in Texas, Rick, they enfranchised it in state law. Well, there is a instinct right now 
for Democrats to still believe, oh, we can shame them into better behavior. But the people that need to you know, have this focused on them are the folks like the Republicans that crossed back over and voted for Glenn Youngkin. Because the Republican Party, as it really is, is not the fleece vest, nice guy, technocrat Glenn Youngkin. It's crazy people. It's people like Blake Masters who goes out and says, I'm running for U.S. Senate because Trump had the election stolen from him. It's people like Josh Mandel in Ohio who, you know, talk about their principles of investing are gold, canned goods, and ammunition. I mean, all these things that have this edge to them. And Bannon has a whole sort of cadre of younger, former Republican sort of alt-right guys now. Shiny young fascists, I used to call them. And then if you manage to get a shot in on them, they say, my dad's a lawyer, he's going to sue you. Pretty much. So we're in a moment where we get this right, or these could be the last elections of our lifetime. We get this right, or people will be so intimidated, they'll say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in politics because bad guys are threatening to kill me. I don't want to be in politics because they'll shoot me. It's not a great place to live. No. And Rick, before we start talking about the Republicans more particularly, I think that's the one thing that, you know, as we talk about the fight between democracy and authoritarianism, those are big words. If you've never lived in an authoritarian environment, you probably don't really know what that means. And if you were born and raised into a, an otherwise healthy democracy and have not had to do much for it, then you take it for granted like most of us would. But what I see is that for all of the things that we talk about messaging and different voter groups, this is really about power. Ultimately, the Republicans want power over you and the Democrats, I believe, as the only pro-democracy party left, are still willing to understand that they are public servants. Now, that doesn't mean we agree with them on everything, but it does mean that if they win, they win graciously. If they lose, they lose graciously, but that they need to fight like hell every day. Because to your point, if you don't take this stuff seriously, then one day you're going to look up and, you know, just like it felt for so many of us when Trump was president, like, what did he say today? You know, what's he pissed off about today? Which is how people in Poland or Hungary or Russia or China feel every day because it's arbitrary. Your whole life is arbitrary based on other people. Not yourself, but other people. Yeah, and the idea of being willing to lose an election graciously, being willing to say, okay, the other guy won. You and I have both been on the good side of elections and both been on the bad side of elections. And all I know is every candidate I've ever worked for who had to make the concession call made it gracefully. Every candidate I've ever worked for who had to take the concession call from the loser accepted it graciously. And this idea that has increasingly infected our politics, that the other side isn't just wrong or ideologically incorrect, but evil and must be destroyed. We need to work on that as a country as quickly as we can. And it's one of the reasons that we're still in this fight every day is that the democracy that we treasure is the only form in the world where it really, really works like that consistently over time. And it protects the rights of political minorities at scale. If we don't save it, what replaces it is not going to be either a conservative paradise or a liberal paradise. It's going to be a violent and truly horrible place. You know, we're all lucky enough, at least most of us, not to have experienced that. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. All right. So Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell have long had a tenuous relationship. And by tenuous, you mean they fucking hate each other. They hate each other. <laughs> yes. McConnell always saw the guy as a clown, but a tiger he thought he could ride. Trump sees McConnell, frankly, as he is and like other people see him, which is a creature of Washington in it only for himself, craven, the whole thing. They both hate each other for what it is they are. 
back in April, we realized that there was an opportunity here to start to drive that wedge. And now I think we're starting to see, you know, sometimes we start things and, and we don't know whether or not it's going to work. But now we're starting to see this, which is Trump, we know like a month ago, he was actively calling Republican senators saying, you need to get rid of McConnell. You need to overthrow him. No takers on that front. But in response to the passage of the infrastructure bill that we talked about a little bit earlier, McConnell voted in favor of the bill and put him back in the crosshairs of Trump. And this is what Trump said in a statement. He said, quote, why is it that old crow Mitch McConnell voted for a terrible democratic socialist infrastructure plan and induced others in his party to do likewise when he was incapable of getting a great infrastructure plan wanting to be put forward by me and the Republican Party? Now, aside from the weird capitalization and terrible <laughs> grammar, because that was even hard for me to read. Which I love what Ryan did yesterday, like redlining it. I know, posting. right. I know. <laughs> you know, we see the same thing out of Bannon. We see the th same thing out of Marjorie Taylor Greene. We see the same thing out of Josh Hawley. It's a socialist agenda, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, 19 Republicans voted for this thing. So it was, in fact, bipartisan in both houses. You know, and McConnell was at an event in Kentucky, and this is what he said. He said, quote, we have a lot of infrastructure needs, both in rural areas and with big bridges. It's a godsend for Kentucky. They loathe one another individually and personally, but the real fight is going to take place in these contested U.S. Senate races as we come into next year. You mentioned Ohio, you know, the two idiots running in Missouri, the guy in Pennsylvania who apparently beat up his wife and kids, right? These are also like the anti-Yunkins, right? Like it doesn't matter whether or not Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia. So from your perspective, how does that start lining up to you, practically speaking, and what is it that we're going to do to really help those divisions increase? Well, first off, we're going to remind Republicans who the candidates Donald Trump supports really are. And we're going to remind them that everything they find uncomfortable about Trump, the corruption, the venality, the racism, the scumminess, the weirdness, the clack of weird, violent hangers-on around him, everything that, that is in those moments of darkness and doubt that they have, we're going to remind them that these are the people he's picking. Nobody's going to get through a Republican primary who isn't a Glenn Youngkin who could buy it and spend millions of dollars to buy off the Republican Party of Virginia, which is what he did. He bought the Republican Party of Virginia. These guys are going to have to all kiss Trump's ass, curry his favor, and it is going to be something that is much harder for them to just wave off and, oh, yeah, whatever about Trump. They're not going to be able to keep him out of the political dialogue, and we're going to keep making sure that that happens. We're also going to keep dividing Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. Like, I'll give you an example. Once again, in Ohio, Jane Timken is a moderate Republican who Mitch McConnell wants to run. He fears Tim Ryan is going to be a very competitive Democrat, and I think he's right. Tim is a very competitive Democrat. But Timken, I should probably just endorse her now. In fact, I endorsed Jane Timken in the Republican primary. I endorse her because she's a moderate rhino Republican, a Romney Republican, a Bush Republican. Who supported Anthony Gonzalez, who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Indeed. And a lot of our Democratic friends will go, how dare you support a Republican? I'm not supporting her in the general. I'm supporting her in the primary. And the reason I'm doing that is because the MAGAs will now turn on her like fucking piranhas in the Amazon. So we're in a situation where we're going to be able to leverage a lot of those things as we do. And I think it's going to be a year where our ability to kick down the door and show other people how to fight and show people where the terrain of the battle is, is going to be vitally important in trying to hold the majority in the House and to hold the majority or even expand it in the Senate. And it's going to be tough. It's going to be a high hill to climb. But, you know, that's why we're here. Well, I just remember back to 2010 
when Republicans, you know, we called them the Tea Party then, which I guess now, you know, they were the first MAGA people to crawl out of the swamp and onto the land, I guess. People in Nevada and Colorado and some of these places, right? They lost seats they should have otherwise won because the candidates were so far outside the mainstream. And frankly, they're not even that close to the mainstream now, right? That's how wacky they were. So what does that say for the voters that we talk to a lot, which are those middle of the road Republicans, conservative leaning independents? They're not Trump people. They don't really like the Republican Party anymore, but they're not Democrats yet. How do we illustrate for them, like having Josh Mandel as your U.S. senator does nothing for you, does nothing for your family, is fundamentally bad for the country? I think the argument that Trump folks are going to make is what they always make. That argument is we're owning the libs. That argument is look how much we're pissing off the other side. That argument is never about we're helping people, we're doing something for America, we're going to fix material problems in the world. It is always about who's the bigger asshole, who's going to piss off the liberal media the most. It will never stop, and it's going to be a, an accelerating course with these folks because there's no incentive on the right to do anything but performative Trump worship and trying to piss people off. And I think it's really important to just remember this is not a party that's about ideology anymore. It's not about any kind of policy position other than retain and gain power and try to blow up everything in society that would allow people who don't agree on every single point to talk to each other. Well, I think and even less about policy or ideology, the values it espouses, I think, are fundamentally un-American. I believe they're fundamentally indecent. And I think they are, Rick, ultimately antithetical to how most Americans want to live their lives, right? Which is, I don't want to get up and fight every day. I have a job to do. I have family to take care of. I've got this to do. I've got that to do. Like, I don't want to go looking for fights all the time. And the problem is, and I think this is a good way to finish, is the turbulence we feel now must be acknowledged. And it must be fought through if we want to get back to that world that we all believe is possible in whatever the new version of America is going to be. Because let's be clear, gang, the old America, whether or not it's pre-Trump or pre-pandemic or whatever, is over, right? Like we're in a new epoch in American history. And the good news, Rick, is that we have the opportunity to shape that. And I'm certainly glad that I get to stand next to you every day as we do that. Likewise, my brother. Absolutely. So, Rick, we're going to let everybody get out of here. But before we do, where can we find you on the Twitters? I am at the Rick Wilson on the Twitter machine. You can also catch me on Tuesdays and Thursdays on LPTV, our streaming channel. And also remember, we've got Mondays and Fridays with Lunch with Lincoln at noon Eastern, a rotating cast of hosts. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Rick, sometimes it's Sarah. And also we're speaking Wednesday night with Maya May and Lisa Senecal. You can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Until then, Rick, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. 
as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.